Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. For today's episode, we had the amazing opportunity to sit with our friend, Charlie Watts, a.k.a. the Aura Weaver, a.k.a. Witchy Woman, PhD Explorer, Conqueror, Lover of All, amazing, incredible human being. And in this conversation, we got to really deep dive into what it means to have a conscious relationship to substances and sobriety and the consequences of being in a culture where numbing ourselves is constantly normalized. We talked about the amazing magic that happens when you stop depending on substances and start clearing out your body and the magic that happens when you really come back home to yourself. This was an amazing episode that we had with Charlie. I'm so excited to share it with you guys. And with that pretty mental family, take in a deep breath with us. And tune in. All right, you guys. And before we start the episode, I want to introduce our sponsor, Resonate with Sarah, a digital agency that runs YouTube ads, Google ads, Facebook ads. They run organic social media and so much more. Email copywriting, uh, digital copywriting, basically all of your digital needs. And I love them because they're all about using the master's tools to to basically play in this the game of this world. So they don't stray away from topics of creating ads on the internet and bringing in more money because a lot of people typically, especially if you're doing some kind of like spiritual work, they say, I shouldn't be asking for more money for my services. These are just my gifts, but that's not what this is about. As we learned with the podcast with Alexander James, calling in money is, it's, and money is an energetic and resonate with Sarah is completely aligned with that and they want to align you with that and they want to introduce you to the world and amplify you to the world and your messages and your offerings and to not shy away from bringing in boatloads of money because as Sarah, the CEO, always says, fill my cup so I can fill up the cups of others. Mm -mm -mm. Love Resonate with Sarah. Check our show notes to read more about the company and dive into their services. And with that pretty mental family, it is time to tune in. It is March 18th, 2021. We are opening ourselves up and aligning to the highest version of ourselves, opening ourselves up as vessels for whatever messages want to come through. We are inviting in all of our spirit guides, our angels, and our ancestors 
to bring forth any communication that is valuable for us, valuable for our community and everyone that they come in contact with, the highest healing of ourselves and the highest healing of our community and the highest healing of the planet. The portal is now open. Charlie, AKA or Weaver, AKA, we have a few nicknames actually for you. Witchy woman, PhD explorer, conqueror, lover of all. <laughs> That's what TJ said when we, we texted her yesterday because we were like, do you have Charlie's number? And she goes, see also witchy woman, explorer. <laughs> she gave us all those nicknames and we were like, That's a perfect intro. Yeah. Multi <laughs> multi-dimensional human being over here, one hundred percent. I can't keep track of time. Because <laughs> it doesn't exist. So Charlie, we got introduced to you through your work um, with the aura weaver, with that aspect of of your identity, and you know, and we knew that we had we had TJ in common, and we've had a few conversations on spirituality, and and we see you being super active with advocacy and just really portraying a very conscious message on Instagram. And most recently, we saw you speaking about your journey with sobriety. So, you know, Valentina reached out to me and we were like, oh, we need to get Charlie on to talk about that because that's a really important conversation in this whole, in this mental health landscape that we all navigate. Yeah, we would love if you could introduce yourself to to our community for starters. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so happy to be here today. It's it's great to be chatting with y'all. Uh, so I've been pretty much I've been a full time artist for the last couple years and really digging into um, different aspects of photography. And my photographs have always been deeply spiritual. And that led me to aura photography. So that's been kind of uh, my bread and butter for the last um, last couple of years has been um, working with this really old camera that um, creates these like really fun 1970s Polaroids that are kind of indicating what different things you're going through within your orc field. And, you know, as an artist, you're kind of in this fringe community. And within that fringe experience, like it is wild and it is fun. But for, you know, hard uh, most of my 20s, you know, largely the art community is centered around alcohol and drinking. And so one of the things like the, yeah, the reason we're chatting today is like two years ago, I just reached this point where it's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I can't be a part of this community anymore. And like, I can't, you know, do this for my health anymore. So it's, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the very beginning of like the, the conversation. <laughs> no, it's, so, this is something that me and Paula have talked about on the podcast a few times because that just bar culture is it's equivalent to i'm sure more like all over the world it's just society like that's what people do it's alcohol is everywhere alcohol is not necessarily an evil i mean depending on how you look at it but it can just be something that can suck you in and can become an evil before you even realize it and it's something that i dealt with because i didn't drink So I always had so like people did not understand. I just didn't want to. I wasn't, it didn't make me feel good. I wasn't called to it, to it. It didn't taste good to me. And it was hard to keep up with a lot of friends because that's what they did. That's what people do to hang out. Yeah. And 
And I, I, I've been lucky enough to live in Europe on and off my entire life. And, you know, it's, it's very, very similar. Uh, you know, the drinking cultures like in, in France and Italy are, are slightly different than here. There's not quite as much binging, but it's, it's really interwoven into the, the culture. And, you know, with, you know, being in Italy for so long, it's pretty much everything you do, there's a glass of wine involved. And one of the things I, you know, I really started to notice my drinking when I was living. I lived in Italy for six months. Uh, this is when I was about 19. And, you know, as part of you being an American in a foreign country, you become this like, it, it's like all of the stereotypes of just like how Americans go to other countries to party or like, you know, how Australians go to other countries to party. And, you know, I was like checking in with myself at one point and I realized, you know, we, I was probably drinking a bottle of wine a day when I was living in Italy, but so was everyone else I was with at the time. So it felt very normal. It didn't feel that I was like stepping out of a boundary or was like pushing my own limits. And you just get super used to doing certain things. And I remember um, I moved back to the United States from Paris and it was one of those things I moved, this is, this would have been later. This was when I, my um, mid twenties. And when I came back to the United States, I wasn't drinking as much and I wasn't drinking as much coffee. And I went through like a full blown withdrawal um, situation where I was like violently shaking. And I was like, thought I had the flu. And then I was just thinking about it and it was just like, Oh wait, I haven't had any alcohol in a couple days. And so it was like actually like going through full blown withdrawal, like in my mid twenties. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So I think with like my, my personal relationship with drinking, you know, I started drinking when I was 12 and it was one of those things, you know, I was always with other people. I was always, it was, I was, I'm never someone who drank alone. So you, I never thought of myself as kind of like this poster child for like what an alcoholic would look like. Like I never considered myself an alcoholic. And even though like in retrospect, it was one of those things where it was a lot of problematic drinking. And it, you know, I grew up in kind of the, like a lot of my friends were in the suburbs of Atlanta. And so throughout high school, like what you did is you like got drunk and then you drag raced. And it was one of those things like at the time it was really fun and was really wild. But in retrospect, it was just like, holy shit. <laughs> like, I'm so grateful to be alive. Like, very grateful to be alive. Damn. Drinking and then drag racing. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Your angels mm -hmm. were definitely protecting you. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, yeah. No, I have I have a bunch of them. Like, definitely fairy godmothers being like, what are you doing? <laughs> Stop that. And, you know, it's it's growing up in the South, it, it was interesting. Like, as a young person, there was never any judgment for something like drinking and driving. Like, you know, I mean, obviously my parents were very much like, never do that. Like, that's horrible. Uh, but like amongst my peers, there was never any judgment around that. And it was interesting uh, then living in California for a while, where in California, there is this uh, respect for human life, <laughs> just in general. But within like my group of friends there, like if someone saw you leaving to go home and you'd had two beers like I would have friends who would get furious and would be like you can't drive after two beers and it would be like oh yeah I won't like and it was it was just an interesting shift and I, I won't like say like all of the south is this way or all of like this is one way but it's just like very much within the drinking culture growing up here 
you know, it's, it was like the stereotypes of like the, the huge frat parties, the kegs, the um, like endless two buck chuck, uh, just like Miller light all day. (laughs) And I, you know, it was one of those things where pretty much like everyone around me was doing it. So it never struck me as bad. It never struck me how I was numbing myself and hiding a lot of my abilities. And it just, you know, it allowed for this like false sense of community. Like I felt a part of a huge community here in Atlanta. And then it was really interesting when I stopped drinking, that whole community essentially really petered off in a way that was, I mean, it wasn't surprising, but it was, you know, the people who were important really showed up. And it was just a, my, I went from being such a social butterfly to being like very introverted and very, um, very quiet. (laughs) You know, something that I've seen in my life um, with the people in my life who, I don't know what classifies the actual term alcoholic or we want to put a label to it, but I guess they would be an alcoholic just drinking every single day. And then when they do drink, they most often get to the point where like their voice starts slurring. When I, people in my life that are like that, I've seen that they almost like freeze in time. They almost like I, it can be three years will pass and it's as if the entire, like in those three years, like a lot of shifts around them would have happened, will have happened. And their life is almost just this has become this like cyclical, it's the same thing every single day. And and what makes up their life is their relationship to the drink at the end of the day. Absolutely. And there, there was a couple of dive bars that I was at pretty regularly that even, you know, you'd run into the same people every day. And I would like have some friends who were always there who were like much older than me, where it just, it, I very much relate to that feeling stuck. And I was very stuck um, in my late twenties. And that's kind of when I started realizing that something had to change like drastically. What, what made you finally make that decision? It was a lot of decision. It was like a lot of different factors that really piled into it. And, you know, the first thing that kind of started happening was I was hospitalized four times across several years with kidney infections. And so, you know, with kidney infections, I hope no one ever has to go through those experiences. It was it was the most physical pain I've ever been in. It was incredibly high fevers to the point of hallucination. Hallucination? Like, what would you see? Um, you know, like things would melt, things would, uh, you know, would like everything would become geometricized and, uh, you know, everything would get like that really, really bright. And the first time, or actually, no, the second time I was hospitalized with kidney infections, I was so dehydrated that it took them 14 times to find a vein for an IV. And, uh, they finally found a vein in my neck to get me hydrated and, you know, just talk about pain. <laughs> like, cause you know, at that point they, I was not on any kind of painkillers. It was just like, we have to get you hydrated first. And so that was kind of one of the first really eye-opening experiences with alcohol. Cause all of those kidney infections, all four of them. And it's funny how, you know, in hindsight it's 2020, but at the time it was just like, Oh, it's a kidney infection. But you know, in hindsight, every single one of those happened after a weekend of partying pretty much. And it was, you know, every single one of them, like, you know, one was graduating from undergrad, one was graduating from uh, my master's degree. So it was just like, 
you know, it was just like tracking these, you know, it would basically be like the three days where it was like graduation and then family celebrations and then uh, going, saying goodbye to friends. And so these culmination effects just like had this effect on my body. And the last time I was in the hospital, this, it was really intense. And at one point, you, you know, I'm in a lot of physical pain and everything just went white. And it was, you know, it was one of these moments where it was like, okay, something's got to change. Something's got to change. And I remember at the end of that, because, um, you know, normally when you like go to the hospital for something, they're like, okay, you're, you're fixed, go home. And there's not any kind of follow up. There's not any kind of like, this is what you should do to prevent this from happening again. And that experience, the fourth time I was hospitalized, um, I actually had a nurse pull me aside who uh, she was Korean and she was basically like, okay, this is what you need to do. And was basically like, you need to eat kimchi all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I do now. (laughs) I've never had, (laughs) I've never had a kidney infection since, but with, you know, she was the one of the first people to ever really talk talk to me like a human and be like, this is what causes this. This is what you need to do to prevent this. Um, but it was still, still, so it's, it's kind of funny how it's like navigating the dumpster fire that is my, my life. So while I was in the hospital with that fourth kidney infection, my roommate at the time uh, went to a party, slipped and fell off the fourth story of um, her apartment, of the apartment she was in and passed. So she was just one of the most incredible humans I've ever met. She was so beautiful, so loving. She was one of those people where, you know, you're just like heart melted when she walked into the room. She was also incredibly loud. So you always knew where she was, but so she was um, a professional acrobat, like very talented circus performer. And just the idea that she could fall at first, I thought people were joking, but you know, it's like one of those things, like you go out on a fire escape during a party and like I, you know, living in San Francisco, that's like where, what we did all the time. We were just always out on fire escapes. But just this one day, it had been raining, she'd been drinking, and she slipped and fell. You know, it's one of those things like, you can't say like this or this when someone passed, but you can, I know how capable she was in her body. And I know how I do believe if she hadn't been drinking that night, she might have not slipped. I mean, she might have because, you know, we just can't know these things. But, you know, after losing her was really eye opening. And then getting sick was really eye-opening. And then the the final kind of nail in my coffin of uh, <laughs> the push into sobriety was uh, the last night I ever drank alcohol. I went to this party with a friend and like all the cocktails were neon, like glowing neon. And it was so beautiful and it was so fun. And I just like got so drunk. Uh, and then I called my partner that night and basically berated him for two hours about something that wasn't his fault. And, you know, I was really cruel. I don't remember any of this. I was really frank. I was, you know, any, I was just being really, really mean to him and he didn't deserve that. And, you know, at the time we were trying to do long distance and I think that was just part of me snapped where it was just like, I don't want to do long distance anymore. And after that happened, it kind of, it reached this point where it was like, do you want to keep drinking or do you want to have your relationship? And my therapist at the time, who was instrumental to this, was like, okay, it's time for you to go to rehab. It's it's time for you, like, you need to go away for a while. And that just 
the experience of someone saying that to you, of someone being like, okay, you like, it's, it's time for you to go to rehab. It was just so shocking. And it was so, it felt like everything stopped. It felt like time stopped. I felt so heavy. I felt like I was just wearing a weighted blanket at all times. I could really only manage like what was directly in front of me. And through the process of looking into rehab, I recognize like the first thing is like rehab is insanely expensive and is also like, it's not a guarantee for anyone. And I was also, the way I drank, I didn't drink every day. And, you know, towards the end of my drinking, I was only drinking like maybe three or four times a month. But the problem was on those three or four days, I was usually drinking to the point of blacking out. So I was, you know, in consideration of that, I was like, okay, what can I do? Like, I can't afford to go to rehab, but I want to prove to myself and to my part and to my family, or mainly I just wanted to prove to myself that I could stop. And so that's when um, I started just like reaching out to everyone I knew who was uh, important to me. Uh, And especially I reached out to a bunch of healers. Like I reached out to like my nutritionist, I reached out to my herbalist and I was just like, what do I do? And you know, with the herbalist I work with, she is one of the grandmothers in the industry, just like this powerful woman. And she basically looked at me and she's like, well, do you want to stay alive? Because I want you to stay alive. So I got on a really strict herbal protocol with her to help detox. So, you know, a lot of these like different liver detox herbs. And then I also committed to doing a 90 for 90. So that is 90 AA beanings in 90 days. And through that, um, that is when it's, you know, at the end of those, because I pretty much felt like I was at this point where I was like, okay, if I can prove I can do 90 meetings in 90 days, I don't need to go to rehab. And like, I just like, one of my mantras was like, you can't take my shoelaces from me, which like some rehabs, you can't have shoelaces. So it was, that was like my mantra is like, I'm keeping my shoelaces. And uh, that 90 for 90 was so transformative. And I know AA is very polarizing for a lot of people. And I am not currently an AA. I kind of like reached a point with it because there, there are aspects of AA that we can get into that I don't agree with and I don't think are true. But for getting sober, it was so beautiful and the community was incredible. And I met just so many beautiful people and just so many, you just hear these stories that just make you feel like the how beautiful life is and just like how powerful life is. You know, in those rooms, I I came back to myself in this really, really powerful way. What an incredible story. It's tough. I think about how central alcohol is in our culture and even how the relationship we have to it is very dependent on what aspect of the culture you're involved in, that it can completely normalize binge drinking. And then you can, and then you step away from that and realize, like, whoa, why is it that we are poisoning our bodies in exchange for connection? Like, when did that become? When did that become the norm? Yeah, and it's, it's. I like to think about in my head, like, what if it had been LSD that we <laughs> chosen instead of alcohol? <laughs> like, how like interconnected we could be instead of so uh, so numb and so separate. And it, it's so pervasive in so many ways. And, you know, in my early sobriety for anyone who's in that phase, like just know it's going to be, it's going to be a little lonely for a minute. Cause I had to, I had to stop. I couldn't go out at all. Like I couldn't be around alcohol at all. And that was really, really hard. So essentially that would just meant I had to be alone for a while. And I'm, I'm grateful I did that 
like now, no problem. I've gone to a couple, well, I mean, obviously not during COVID, but you know, I've, I've been able to go to bars and like not feel triggered at all. And I've been able to go to a couple of like small gatherings where other people were drinking and it, it, I'm at a point now in my sobriety where it's more like, Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Cause like in the early, early, you know, it was just like missing, just like missing my friends, like missing that, that connection. And it's like, you do have to work a little harder to connect with people now because it's, it has to be this more authentic. It has to be this, this true connection. Um, I've gotten really horrible at, if I don't like you, you you're going to know immediately. And <laughs> like, I'm not going to give you any of my energy. That is so real. Oh my God. I relate to that. Um, it's so crazy. Cause you're like, I'm not going to go out and have a drink with you. And then we're going to get along in two seconds. If I don't like yeah. you, like I, we're going to, this is, we just, we don't vibe and we got to say it right now. And it's so real how it's so lonely because I mean, what else are you going to do now? I'm like, who wants to go on a hike? Who wants to go on a daytime walk? Who wants to, um, and I will enjoy a drink every now and then, but it is lonely when you are on the more sober side of life. That's what I struggle with. I have certain clients that, that, you know, when we talk about them leaving alcohol, that the biggest wall that we always run across is that along with that will come an experience of isolation. You know, it, 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 it requires almost like a whole lifestyle change and a social group change. And when you've had the same social group for 20 years, that's a big ask. And then on top of that, you know, I, I don't know, Charlie, if you've heard this, this new kind of approach to addiction where, you know, you're not saying necessarily that the opposite of addiction is sobriety, but that the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And community. And, and community. I, and I think we've all, I mean, the, the really famous study, I'm going to forget the name of it, is like, if you put a rat in isolation and there's drug water and then there's regular water. If it's in isolation, it will only drink the drug water to the point that it will kill itself. But if you put a rat in a fun community of rats where there's like toys and like things for them to do and interact, they won't even drink the drug water. So yeah. it's, it's very much, it is that community. And that is one of the things I was so grateful for um, early on in AA was like, you can, you can have this huge community immediately. And I know that's super hard now with um, with COVID, but I felt very lucky because, you know, you would go like all the stereotypes of the coffee in the church basement with like 50 other people and no one was unapproachable. Uh, everyone was very accepting. And, you know, it was just, it was so peaceful to find people who have reached this point of sobriety. Um, it was funny, like with the, my my old sponsor, she always had this look in her eyes of like, you don't know. And I was like, no, no, I, I like, I know. <laughs> of like, you know, like sobriety can bring you like magical things. And I was like, no, 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 I get it. And she'd be like, no, it's it's a secret. I'm like, no, no, no. It's <laughs> when, you, when you say that in those rooms and through that process, you came back to yourself. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Absolutely. And this is one of the things like that um, Valentina and I had been kind of talking about was that, sorry, I'm being attacked. Um, Is that a kitty? Hi, kitty. Now go away. Go away. (laughs) So with coming back to myself, it was, I think in my twenties, I had built up this wall of putting myself down, like not allowing myself to truly um, be expanded into my like auric field. I was 
very tired all the time. It's kind of, um, I'm amazed how much I was able to do in my 20s. And I guess that kind of comes with being younger um, to having that energy. But one of the things we did talk about that Valentina and I touched on, I accrued an incredible amount of credit card debt in my 20s. You know, there was just like things that I let get out of control. Like I had close to $20,000 in credit card debt. Um, I was living month to month with the work I was doing. I was not caring at all about my financial health. I wasn't caring at all about my mental or physical health. I was kind of just like, it was more like the world was happening to me. And I had, you know, and it's not that we can ever have control over anything, but it really was just more like today I'm going to do whatever just happens or like who texts me, like who's like, you know, who's at what bar, what can I do today? So um, when I got sober, I really took, it's like really kind of boring adulting stuff, but how like it was so powerful to kind of step into that spiritual adult and really tap into how to mother and father myself and how to, you know, stand up for myself and really, you know, create a lot of boundaries. Like I created a lot of boundaries. I had this kind of fun switch where in my twenties, everything was a yes. And in my thirties, everything has been a no. <laughs> so now I'm trying to like level that back out. Cause you know, I need to say yes to something eventually. And <laughs> <laughs> I know those no's can stack up and get real addicting. <laughs> yeah. Especially now uh, it's like, with the excuse of not saying people, it's like, oh, great, that's fine. <laughs> but it just coming back, I have the biggest thing since sobriety, you know, I have been able to completely eradicate a lot of my debt. And more than anything, have I have like this focus now that I've never really had throughout my whole 20s. And through that focus, I was able to discover occupational therapy. And I'm now working towards my doctorate in occupational therapy. And in order to get into the program that I'm currently in, I had to retake um, 12 undergrad classes and take the GRE and do all of over 100 observation hours. And it just on top of working full time. And I don't think I could have done that if I hadn't been sober. It just like allowed this like discernment of, okay, like I love being an artist. I'm so grateful for what I've built, but like there needs to be some stability. And I also like reached this point too, where I'm like, how can I be at better service to my community? And I, I love my spiritual witchy poos. Like I love them. But when there's not as much evidence-based practice and a lot of the things, I've just seen a lot of abuse in the spiritual community. And I've just seen a lot of, you know, people making medical claims that are false. So for me with occupational therapy, it was just this like, this huge, like, oh yeah, like this moment of like, oh, here is this system that's really beautiful. And I've seen straight up miracles happen with some of the kids I've worked with. It's been insane. I like watched a five-year-old go from being completely nonverbal to becoming like one of those kids who was just like, (laughs) just like, so just like seeing, seeing that evidence-based practice in, in person has just been really powerful. So it's allowed you a whole new level of engagement with the world. Absolutely. And it's allowed, you just like can't hide when you're sober. Um, I'm going to beat you up. He might need to get locked up in a minute. He doesn't normally do this when I'm doing, um, yeah, speaking, uh, you know, uh, to kind of avoid your question and go back to the more doom and gloom while I'm sober, why of why I'm sober. Um, so Josie used to belong to my friend Flynn, 
who Josie's your cat. Josie's my cat. So okay. Josie's my cat. For those who are on the audio, he keeps uh, interrupting this podcast interview. Uh, he belonged to a friend who was very manic and a very talented artist, but had a lot of very big up and downs. Um, and it was a, a similar story where he had one night where he just didn't make it home because he fell and hit his head after drinking to the point of blackout. So it was one of those like, so Josie's kind of also this like fun, like my spirit animal of this like reminder of like why I'm sober. And just like how, you know, with both of these friends that have come up who have passed, both of them were so alive and like so creative and so talented. And I feel as a society, we are just completely robbed that they're not still with us. That's just been, you know, tying back into like my own sobriety of being like, no, like I want to, I want to like stick this out. I like want to see it through. What was the original question? Well, I was just saying that getting sober allowed you to get fully engaged with life in a whole new way. And it's that statement, I think is so powerful that you just can't hide when you're sober and you are going to feel everything. You're going to be fully conscious I mean, especially when we're talking about alcohol, right? Because alcohol numbs your consciousness. Shrooms do a little bit of a different thing. Marijuana does a little bit of a different thing. Well, actually, in fact, like, what is your view on the different substances and versus alcohol? Or And that was one of my big breaks with Alcoholics Anonymous was I am, you know, I work with a lot of plant medicines and it all comes down to intention. It all comes down to how you're using the substance like how are you intentionally and it's it's one of those things like even like my biggest struggle right now is tv 100 like i'm using tv the same way i was using alcohol where it's like i'm hanging out with my friends on scrubs but you know <laughs> in this like different way uh and to like reach that just wanting to be numb so i am more of the mindset it really depends on intention you know i really feel that you know a lot of the plant medicines are very different, but I've also had friends struggle with marijuana the same way I struggled with alcohol. And I will definitely say like, you know, I was, I've had like a really fun wildlife, which I appreciate, but there's, I definitely noticed with some of my plant medicine experiences, it was more chasing the experience, more chasing the like, wanting to see the crazy colors and connect with God. And so it's like, even with like a substance like ayahuasca, you can still use that in a way that is, if your intention is not to integrate and heal, if your intention going into those types of ceremonies is to like see a bunch of beautiful colors, like it's kind of the same. But one of like the the big, t- you know, with like AA, they are like, everything is a no-go. <laughs> yeah, and it's- I- I've seen it be very, um, it's very black and white. Is there the person who started that? Like, wasn't there a story with like plant medicine that inspires that? Um, oh, there that, is. That I think I, shrooms, shrooms was part of what helped him kind of wake up to his sobriety mm-hmm. from alcohol. Yeah, I think it was, it was, um, I should know this because I've like read about him a, a ton. <laughs> but there was a lot, because like, you know, also it used to be the stigma of mushrooms used to be different. Uh, than it is, I guess now, like post post the hippies. But um, so, and it's also like with Alcoholics Anonymous, it's so powerful. But one of their kind of tenets is like once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. And 
I don't identify with that. I don't believe that we are ever just one thing. And, you know, especially with, you know, a lot of the more shamanic traditions that I work within, we are, you know, we are constantly evolving and becoming these new um, beings. Like I am not who I was a year ago. I was not who I was when I was using. And it's, you know, this idea that you are always sick. That was like a big thing that just didn't sit right with me. And that I don't personally agree with. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely of of your feel, like the feel that you're coming from when it comes to that. Um, because to say that whole definition of alcoholism as being a lifelong condition was based on the argument that it was genetic, that it's a genetic predisposition. But that's actually a really simplistic one-sided view of things because that's not even how genetics work. How our genetics manifest is dependent on the environment in which we exist. Depends on what, you know, what we're practicing. Like we can change the manifestation of our genetics. So, you know, that's epigenetics, that's um neuroplasticity, like our our body, our biology, not just our identity, but our actual biology is constantly evolving depending on what we expose it to and what we practice. And a lot of times the overuse of these substances is actually rooted in trauma or emotional pain that people are trying to medicate. And so if you can actually access what that trauma and that emotional pain is, the substance becomes less and less relevant rather than it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. And it's like, I, in, like, you know, I think a lot of it is mirroring too. Like it might, cause I, I definitely, come from a family of a lot of alcoholics. Like I get it from every side. (laughs) And for me, I I don't know if it's so much of genetics, but it was, you know, you kind of mirror the people you're around. So like I had a family member I lived with who, you know, drank all the time. So when I was around this person, I drank all the time. So it's like, I don't know if that was a genetic thing or if that was just mirroring and feeling like I wanted to be in community. Well, it's a combination of both. You know, that's kind of, that's the thing. That's why families all end up having so many similarities or so many of, you know, similar struggles a lot of times because you have a similar genetic basis, but then you're also experiencing the same conditioning. But at the same time, you can have three kids in one family and have three entirely different outcomes. So it's not all genetics. And I do agree with you that, and some people feel safe in that label of, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's that's kind of what I've heard for the argument in, in um, supporting that is that if you call yourself that, then there's always a reminder there to kind of keep you safe, to keep you away from the substance. For sure. And that, you know, one of the things, because I, I get like a lot of people who will come to me like who are like, look, I, I can't control my drinking this, this, this. I do not want to do AA. And it's one of those things like that's Christian, that's man, that's male. Like, I don't want to do AA. And for me, it's kind of like this thing where it's like, if you want to stop drinking, like, you really got to grip the bull by the horns. And you need to be really scared. If, for example, like towards the end of my drinking, if you, I was, I was talking about this earlier. If you drink to the point of blacking out, like you need to stop drinking. Like that is so dangerous. It is so dangerous to be blacked out because you're essentially losing all control of your body. Like you are essentially giving your body up to the spirits. So, and it's like, and they'll take over and, you know, it's one of those things where like, you know, I've just had some horrendous things happen 
to my community happened to me. Like, you know, I was sexually assaulted when I was blacked out once. Like, and it's not that I don't think some of those things could have been avoided, but like, I do think if I hadn't been blacked out in those moments, I could have maybe stepped away or I could have maybe prevented some of that or, you know, or just like the, the simpleness of like, like two of my friends, they slipped like one of those things where it's like just such a freak thing, but it's, if you lose that bodily control ever, you need to be scared. And I, I know that is kind of sucks and that might be kind of mean to say to some people, but it's like, it's, it's kind of, we do, we don't have control on a lot of things, but the few things we do have control on, it, it's good to like check in with those. When there has been a history of a lot of abuse and you're encountering these blackouts, I do think that that's where a black and white perspective of that AA brings forth, especially in the beginning, is helpful. Because as with anything, it's we have to kind of cleanse our body and cleanse our energy and just reset in order to even be able to engage with it in any kind of conscious way. Or else you're just riding the momentum of the habit and you're just kind of on automatic. So you there is a lot of power of going, at least in the beginning, approaching it in a little bit more of a black and white way. And then afterwards, if people want to go back to drinking, it's engaging with it in as conscious of a manner as possible. And that requires a lot of self-honesty, which is hard because substances will have us lying to ourselves very easily. I think you got to listen to the people around you, man, because I'm serious. Like the people that I've mentioned earlier in this conversation, friends of mine, I filmed them. I have literally filmed them and shown them the video of themselves afterwards. And they've been like that. Literally, I have no idea who that is. I don't remember doing any of that. I don't remember saying that. I don't remember any of this. And but yet they don't think that they have a problem. So it's like you almost have to lend your mind. Like you've got to let your friends do the thinking for you and not your friends in the drinking circle, your friends who are more sober, I guess, because I think it's just so hard when you're swimming in your own water to really, really believe that you don't have control, especially if you have your life together, if you're paying your bills, if you're showing up to places on time, if you're able to still work out and do all these things. Yeah. And it's, you need that self-reflection because, you know, I, I am so lucky. I have a trifecta of best girlfriends who I've known them, like two of them I've known for over a decade. And it's, it's through their relationship. Cause like, you know, also like while I was using, you know, like all the stereotypes, like I was in a really abusive relationship um, that luckily did not last very long. But when I was in it, I was like, this is great. And one of my girlfriends literally flew to LA from Atlanta to be like, you were being taken advantage of. And it was like, oh, like it took that mindset of like having someone who's known me for a long time be like, this is not right. And it's it's so hard when the one of the hardest things for me about getting sober was the feeling that I couldn't trust myself. You know, if other people let you down, that's that's one thing, but like, I felt like, how could I have let this go on for so long? And like in early sobriety, it was like, oh my gosh, it was so much guilt that like I hadn't done this sooner or I hadn't been aware. Cause like, I do think there is a healthy way to drink. Like if you can go out and have a couple drinks and then stop, that is fine. I think there, there are those, those healthy ways to connect. But I was, I think the first time I blacked out, I was 15. And, you know, I was a, uh, I was, you know, it's tricky because like, you know, I never drank regularly. I was never someone who drank every day. But, 
you know, just with the binge drinking, like the signs were always there. And it's just, it's so hard because, you know, in like, you know, in college culture, everyone does. And it's even recently, I've, I've seen some people drink to the point of blacking out. And it was just this interesting experience of, you know, because other people were doing it, it was fine and how normalized it was. But just like, I think for, for me, just like, you know, the health problems I was having and just like not having these people in my life, I was just like, I can't drink anymore. Yeah. Your, your spirit didn't let you get away with, with that path for too mm-hmm. long. Cause then, cause then you get other versions of people that do it their whole life and it just becomes normalized and you know, their health never gets affected. And it's, like, whoa, you know? No, it doesn't. Oh my God. We have a family member <laughs> is indestructible. <laughs> my grandpa. It's like, yeah. It's a massive alcoholic. And this now man he's has had a stroke, he has like <laughs> half a heart, half a lung, and he's still just walking around. But he is like kicking. <laughs> he's like alive and kicking and like sturdy as fuck. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and I, and for you, Charlie, it was like your your journey, your spirit was like, no, mm-mm, we're not doing this. I'm curious when you said earlier um, that in the numbing that alcohol was causing, your gifts were being suppressed. Can you speak to that? Mm, this is what I was about to say. Absolutely. So, you know, as an artist, you know, we, I feel like we pull these artworks like from the universe. They're like these little gifts that spirit gives us that we then get to create and put out into the world. And, you know, I was, I was always making work. There hasn't really been a point when I wasn't making work, but I wasn't allowing for any kind of safety net for myself. It's one of those things like with any kind of, you need that base, you need that root chakra to be like very stable before you can move up into that like genuine creativity And I'm very privileged in that I was like never going to face like houselessness or, you know, was never going to not have food on the table. But I was also like, you know, just barely scraping by with like whatever job was just there. And it was just this very feast or famine lifestyle. And, you know, it is like it is a weird thing to like recognize, like having financial stability has allowed me to produce some of the most profound work I've ever made. It's allowed me to like have a five-year plan. (laughs) And I know that's like not sexy or anything like that, but it's just, you know, in terms of like mental health, like I still have really rough days, but they are nothing compared to what I was going through in my twenties. Like I would get five day hangovers where I would just like be like, could not move, would just be in bed. And that numbing just, it, I felt really disconnected. Like I was doing all of these spiritual practices. Like, you know, I was getting up at 5am and doing Kundalini yoga when I was not hungover. Um, And like, you know, I was doing a ton of yoga and, but it's just like that connection, that ease, that like feeling of, you know, it's, it's kind of funny now, like, I never really feel lonely anymore. And that's been really interesting and really cool. And just in terms of like my own spiritual practice, like just being able to really connect with my guides and have just like these crazy direct downloads where it's, it's one of those just like, I have these experiences now that are just so beautiful and you know, it's one of those things like with my partner and I, we kind of joke like, oh, we're getting high. Like, but it's like, you know, it's one of those things where it's just like something like 
uh, and you probably know a lot about this, Valentina, but like breath work, like can take me to places that like alcohol promised it could and never did. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. That's what I wanted to talk to you about is I want to talk about the magic that came from clearing your vessel and making yourself an open space for the universe to just talk directly through you. And what you just said about breath work, that's what, I mean, I've done ayahuasca, I've done psilocybin, I've, I've played with the psychedelics and breath work has been one of the most profound tools that I have ever used. And the fact that it's inside of us without needing an external thing just shows us how powerful we are. And when we clean ourselves out as purely as possible, I mean, the downloads really do come flooding in. I just got so many goosebumps like all over my arms um, from saying that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the one of the really funny things that has happened in sobriety. I am a direct manifester. Like it is scary how, and it will scary, beautiful, I guess. And it's also one of those things like be careful what you ask for too, because like there's that side of the coin. I was going through a journal that I did for new, like, you know, the new year's resolution from 2019, I did all 20 of the things on my list. And some of them were like absurd. Like some of them were like multiple six figure business, have a career, be in a really stable, really, like everything happened like almost exactly. And even with, you know, with, with my, my business, like with the aura photography business, like the camera I have, these cameras are normally atrociously expensive. And I, I knew I wanted to work with these cameras and like had started a savings account, but this, this was still when I had a decent amount of credit card debt. Um, and then I found this one at, at an estate sale. So it was like one of these, just like these beautiful, just these like beautiful things where it was just like the camera came through, like within my partnership, it's just incredible to be able to hit things head on. Cause I don't know about, y'all but quarantine was you know it's it was tough like you know for for a while it was just like my sister and my partner and like I was just gonna burn the house down but I <laughs> um, but I would tell them I was gonna burn the house <laughs> like could, could talk open about communication it. <laughs> it's just like there's either always a cat or a person on top of me I can't do this but but you know just being able to like build a future has been really powerful. And I mean, you know, finding a career, like I've always been, I've always had like the oddest jobs. Like, you know, I've been like always, there's the art has been the backbone of everything. And the art will continue to be the backbone of everything. But, you know, I was thinking about uh, some of the odd jobs I had, like, you know, I was working at a bakery where I had to be there at like four in the morning and how it's like, I never want to work somewhere where I have to be there at four in the morning again. But how, you know, I, I was, thinking about that job in terms of sobriety, just because it was like with that job, I, that was another one of those pushes into being sober. Cause like you can't drink and then go into work at four in the morning, or I cannot drink and then go into work at four in the morning. I know yeah. people that can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I believe it. Like, like yeah. I, I, yeah, especially in the art community, there are like, holy moly. I have some friends who are just prolific artists who like, I have watched drink a fifth of Jack yeah. over and over and over again. And they're like old prolific Dude, artists and prolific drinkers. And they fascinate the living fuck out of me. I am like, I need to look at your cells. I need to look at your DNA because how in the world do people function 
Like I need eight hours of sleep. I need a very healthy, clean diet. I need all these things to be in line to be like a regular human. And some people can like destroy their bodies and just like frolic out into the wild as if nothing happened. <laughs> frolic out into the wild. <laughs> but you I don't yeah, get it. You know, it might look that way too, but you, you go in an inch though. And it's just like the profound unhappiness. Like I'm thinking of like two of my, my older friends who are just like, like their talent just like blows me away. But there's just this like underlying sadness that are just like things they haven't dealt with. So it manifests more on the internal emotional level than it does on like a bruised face and puffy eyes. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's different. It's going to be different for everybody. You know, I think at the end of the day, maybe some of the harm that we've done to ourselves when it comes to substances is trying to approach it from a very black and white perspective. And just the mindset of it's either perfectly acceptable or this horrible stay away from it. And so then when we go to engage with these substances, we do so in an unconscious manner because we, you know, if it's something I'm not supposed to do and then I'm going to do it, then I'm going to stick my head in the sand and just do it. Or I just never question it because everyone around me is doing it. But our culture doesn't do the best job at encouraging each person to really sit down and ask themselves, what is your relationship with this substance? You know, something I like to ask people is like, okay, if life was a person, what's your relationship with life right now? Or same with for substances, like if alcohol was a person, what is your relationship? And a lot of times people come back and they're like, ooh, it's like a really destructive <laughs> toxic relationship but the alcohol itself isn't inherently bad it's what you were saying earlier about the intention it's what is the relationship that i have to this am i doing this to escape myself am i doing this to numb aspects of who i am is this seeping out the life force away from me i also realized that in order for people to really kind of engage uh with sobriety or have a very conscious relationship to these substances, there often needs to be a fuel of wanting to live for something greater than ourselves. Yeah. And that's like one of the things like, you know, even with like my big career shift was just like recognizing how can I be a better service to the community? And that is one of the really beautiful things about AA is that, you know, as part of that, you are at service, like, you know, you are cleaning up after meetings, you are, you're figuring out these ways to be at service to that community. And you know, as an artist, like one of the odd jobs, like I've been teaching preschool art on and off for 10 years. That's been like one of the odd jobs I've had. And, you know, I was just like hitting this point with a lot of the kids. Cause like, if you, like, if you have a kid who, you know, might be suffering from like autism or like any, any kind of attention deficit, like I had no training on how to help those kids. Like I, and a lot of the the schools I worked with were like these really underserved um, schools in South Atlanta is where I've worked on and off. And so, you know, you know, you have these kids who just have so much trauma and I just, as an art teacher felt like I couldn't do anything for them. So that's like a big part of like why I'm going into occupational therapy is to figure out how to be at better service to these kids and like show up. Yeah, I mean, I I do believe and I've seen and I've experienced that if we don't have something greater than ourselves to live for, there's not enough motivation to be in full contact with life, then the the main um, MO then is just to seek pleasure, which ends up being an empty promise. It's to get to the end of the day and try to get as much pleasure in our life to get us to that end of the day before we have to do it all over again. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that was kind of the question that started healing my relationship to substances was I realized like in my early twenties, I was drinking all the time. I, you know, I wanted to smoke. I just wanted to run away from myself. I just make art, but not even, but then art also became like a vessel for escaping as well. And then I realized like the more and more I was headed down that path of just pleasure seeking, the sadder I was becoming. Right. And then I realized like, wow, like this is, None of this is really worth it if we're not in connection with each other. Yeah, like what is the, you know, reaching a point for me where I, I realize if I'm not going to be of service, then what's the point? And it's it's beautiful that you say that. The um, herbalist I was talking about earlier who was kind of like, do you want to be alive or do you not want to be alive? Like she said this pretty much the same thing to me is like, you need to figure that out because of her clients, the ones that are doing the best are the ones who have found how to live their lives in service. And, you know, from that point, it's just when it's not just you, it makes it easier and sweeter and any kind of like, you know, I I think I do kind of like the idea of like the veil thinning between you and like the spiritual aspects of self. It's been really beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, there's no better feeling when you really, really, really come home to yourself and that veil just starts getting thinner and thinner and thinner. It, it, it's one of those things though. And it, it's been funny too, because I, I never considered myself like, you know, I'm sober from alcohol, but it's been, it has been funny how pretty much everything else has kind of left too. Like I do, I, you know, I've worked I've done a couple of plant ceremonies since getting sober and they were so terrible <laughs> that it was to the point of like, that was more traumatizing than healing. It's, it's been funny how my body has just been like, Nope, it's just us. <laughs> like um, Now I just have to figure out. Cause it's, it's one of those things like you do. I, I feel like we all need to figure out what that downtime looks like as someone who has like, I don't know about y'all. My brain goes a million miles a minute. Like I am never, not working. So when I have that free time, like in my schedule, I just become a total couch potato trash panda who's just like, it's going to be gross food and TV. So I think it's one of those things where it's like, I feel very grateful that alcohol is no longer a part of my life. Right now I'm working with a nutritionist to figure out how to make sugar not part of my life. And oh my Lord, that has been, it's been, I would say it hasn't been harder than giving up alcohol, but it has been a whole other, it's just like brought up everything again, where it's just like, all of a sudden you like, why am I eating this cookie? Like, where did this cookie come from? <laughs> you know? Uh, and so it, it's one of those, it's not, it's, it's one of those things. It's the onion, the continuum onion. The human experience just doesn't stop. <laughs> it keeps on coming. Yeah. I don't know who wrote this script. I always ask <laughs> that question. I need to have a talk with them you know, we're wired for attachment, we're wired for seeking that attachment to things and that but everything is transient, then our whole journey is about learning to let go of that attachment. And it's like, all right, like, what the heck, man? At the end of the day, love, okay, service, surrender (laughs) and love, surrender and love. And repeat over and over and over again. Before we close out, I we ask all of our guests, what mental health means for you right now in your life? So for me right now, mental health is very much about clarity and forgiveness. It's about, you know, honoring what you're going through, but giving yourself a lot of space to fail right now. And with mental health, it's just 
really figuring out what works for you and being okay with like, you know, maybe it's a new therapist, maybe it's a new herbal medicine, but just, I think it's giving yourself so much space and treating yourself like a baby because it's hard right now, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. We're all about that, the reparenting and, and loving in ourselves with some self-compassion around here. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlie. I want to guess your Zodiac sign, but I'm having some trouble over here. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like we got to spend more time together. I feel like... No, don't do it. Let me go. <laughs> <laughs> I call dibs. Um, okay. I keep... There's like three signs that are circulating and I could be way off. I really could be way off because I'm, let me see. I'm stressed. Okay. Let me see. I feel, I kept getting like Capricorn-y, Capricorn. Wait, don't confirm it. Cause let Valentina do her guesses and then I'll do my guesses. And then I was like, but Gemini keeps coming up for some reason too. Like Gemini made sense. Um, and I don't think you're in Aries, but there are some Aries things that popped out in there. Oh, what no, are you? No, wait, wait, I want to do my, I want to do Paula. <laughs> Spit it out. I want to know. Actually, the ones that came up for me too were Gemini, Capricorn, and uh-huh. Aquarius. Oh, I got you all fooled. What? Oh, Libra, Libra. Like, I don't think you're, you're a Libra. Libra, Libra, Libra. Oh, <laughs> do you know your moon and your rising? So Libra, then a ton of Sagittarius. Oh wow, we sucked at that one. Um, that was hard. I'm like, what? That's what? Mm, interesting. I'm very Libra though. My my partner's Libra too, so we're kind of like the vultures at the end of the Jungle Book, who are like, "What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do?" <laughs> I freaking love Libras. Those were all my best friends growing up. I'm an Aries, so we're we're opposites. Yeah, isn't Libras are like very into aesthetics and beauty and sensualness <laughs> and all that stuff, right? Yeah, I like Libras. Yes. I can rock. Libras can rock are like all. rainbow rainbow fairies. All my friends who have been Libras are this like just like all fucking love. Like they op- they spew out love and rainbows. <laughs> I can only hope. I try. <laughs> I mean, you do actually spew out. She is a rainbow fairy. <laughs> she literally <laughs> is. She literally is a rainbow fairy. Yeah, everyone needs to go check out your Instagram and see all of your aura photos. Where can everyone follow you? So on Instagram, I'm the Aura Weaver, Aura spelled A-U-R-A. And then uh, my website is AuraWeaver.com. I still want to get a, if you ever come to LA, let me know. I need to get a, a photograph by you. I remember the one when Paula went to get hers, I refused to get mine because I was actually hung over <laughs> and I was not willing or ready to see myself surrounded by a black light. <laughs> And I just knew that that's what was about to happen because I felt like Trizash that day. <laughs> it's, but we'll do yeah. it soon. It's so wild how we all ended up interconnecting and just how, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you even realize like how much you played a role in the day that my cat passed away. Yeah. And I got some like s- some snippets. Um, I still haven't listened to the podcast with TJ, but, um, and I can't remember if I told you the story uh, the craziest aura photo I've ever taken was of a friend who was, um, he came the day after his familiar had passed, so another little cat. And um, when you get your aura taken, the photos keep developing after you open them. So we we had gotten to talking and then we came back to the aura photo and an orb, the shape of a cat had shown up on his left shoulder. And that apparently is where the cat always sat. And like both of us were just like, oh my God. 
So it's, it's one of those things like with the aura, I think it's with any of these like self-discovery tools, these like really beautiful little moments that allow for that, that connectivity. But I'm, I'm glad it, it brought something into, into that day. No, yeah. I mean, it totally did. There was something, it was just like, go get this picture of Charlie, like capture the energy of this moment or just, you know, just ended up there. Everything kind of wove together. And, you know, I think it's beautiful to, that. that's what art offers us is the ability to alchemize moments of pain into beauty. So Absolutely, yeah. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Charlie, no, for sharing your spirit with us. So good to see you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. Los queremos mucho. Los queremos mucho. Catch us every Monday at 6 a.m. EST. And send us DMs. Connect with us on Instagram at Pretty Mental Official. We love hearing from you guys. We love hearing your responses to the podcast, what it brings up for you, what it opens up for you. Just connect with us and be kind to yourselves out there. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.